Welcome. This is the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast with host Rob Giannino, where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing community. You see, the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. Check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts, and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Here's your host, Rob Giannino. Pat Dorsey is considered by many as one of the leading knowledge sources in fly fishing today. As a professional guide, author, and speaker, he travels around the country and beyond fishing and teaching the sport he loves. As a partner and guide at the Blue Quill Angler, he bases out of Evergreen, Colorado. He has authored four fly fishing books, Fly Fishing Tailwaters, Tying and Fishing Tailwater Flies, Colorado Guide Flies, and the Fly Fishing Guide to the South Platte River. In this podcast, Pat offers us five winter fly fishing tips. Before we get into those tips, we review the many diverse sections of the South Platte River, including Cheeseman Canyon, Below the Spinning Reservoir, 11 Mile Canyon, and Deckers. As the South Platte is a tailwater, we talk about how to fish a tailwater and what similarities you can find between the South Platte and other tailwaters. Finally, we discuss some guide-style flies, especially midges, as they are particularly important in the winter. We hone in on your equipment setup for fishing these tiny flies. Stay tuned for a fun and educational conversation with Pat Dorsey. And we have some big news. I want to welcome Kayla Fleetwood to the Fly Fishing Journeys team. Kayla has come on as our editorial and media director. She's doing an amazing job and we have a ton happening behind the scenes. We'll definitely be making some big announcements on our expansion very soon. Have you downloaded the Fly Fishing Journeys app? You can find it on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Just search Fly Fishing Journeys. Thanks for listening. I love hearing all the comments about people digging into the podcast and diving into the catalog and listening all the way through. That's so cool. Thank you. Before we jump over to Pat, I want to thank our sponsors, Norvice, Bissell Insurance, and The Fly Fishing Show. We couldn't do what we do without them, so thanks for supporting these fine companies. Pat, thanks for being on the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've got several books out. Your newest book, which we'll talk a bit about, is Fly Fishing Guide to the South Platte River. Another one of your books that we'll talk about is the Colorado Guide Flies. And you know many would consider you one of the top guides in the state of Colorado for understanding how to uncover these maybe some would consider trickier, a little bit more technical fisheries here in Colorado. So we want to talk a bit about that. But before we get into all that, I want to know a bit about your backstory. I was born and raised in Colorado, and I'm just real fortunate to have a father that took me under his wing at an early age. And I caught my first fish in the Gunnison Valley when I was 10 years old. But we fished the South Platte a lot growing up. So I can remember, you know, seeing a guide work on the water on the Eagle River one time. And I don't know, from that moment on, I just decided that that'd be a cool way to make your living. And uh, Jack Dennis was always a mentor of mine. And, and I watched him, you know, speak and tie flies and travel the country. And so I just knew that early on, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a guide. I wanted to be a fly shop owner. And uh, I wanted to be a presenter and to share my passion for the sport. So uh, I've been really blessed. You know, I've been guiding for 30 years. I've been at the Blue Quill now since 1992. And I've somehow found a way to make a career out of what I love to do most. That's amazing. Now, tell me about your relationship with the Blue Quill. Well, I started there in 1992. And then in 2001, I became a partner. So I'm a partner with Dennis Steinbeck in the business. Um, we're a full line fly shop. We have, you know, 25 guides. We specialize on the South Platte River. You know, it's uh, one of the most finicky rivers. And it can humble the best of anglers, including my myself. <laughs> well, that's important to recognize that, you know? I mean, some people that would drive crazy, but I guess you just kind of accept it. You do. It's uh, 
the thing about the South Platte is if, if you can catch fish on the South Platte consistently, fishing everywhere else is just a little bit easier. Well, we want to talk, before we dive into more of your backstory, I want to label this podcast Top 5 Winter Fly Fishing Tips from Pat Dorsey in Fishing Winter. Maybe that would be applicable everywhere, but certainly here in Colorado. So Top 5 Winter Fly Fishing Tips. But before we get into that, Pat, you are an, uh, a signature Umpqua fly tire. How many patterns do you have with Umpqua? You know, I have, a, I think, around a dozen patterns and I know um, I've got some new ones coming out this year they picked up three more patterns so probably around 15 different flies so I'm real proud to be part of that Umpqua team. What would be uh, one or two of the patterns that we might recognize the names of? Probably the Black Beauty and the Top Secret are two of more my renowned midge patterns. Uh, I have a lot of different patterns but I think those are probably a couple bugs that you know people that specialize on tailwaters and fish on tailwaters would probably recognize those two bugs. How did you come up with the Black Beauty? The Black Beauty came about just when I started to begin to realize how important midges were. I mean, I knew midges were really important. And, and what midges lack in size, they make up in numbers. And, and once I started to see, like, all the shucks along the edge of a trout stream, and I can remember one time just picking up a bunch of these shucks, and I, and I took my finger and I scooped it like frosting on a cake. And I go, oh, my gosh, there's so many midges available to trout on a, on a constant basis. I wanted to design something that was simple but effective. And, and most of the patterns that, that I tie are they're guide flies. They're easy. They're quick. They're a little bit thread, a little bit of wire, a little bit of dubbing, but they're super effective. We're going to take a short commercial break to hear from Tim O'Neill of Norvice. What makes the Norvice different than another system? There are a lot of rotary fly tying vices out there. The Norvice is the only vice that will truly spin when you tie flies, and there's a big difference between rotating a vice slowly and spinning it at a bit of a faster RPM. And being able to spin the hook on a zero-axis rotations opens up a lot of doors for us in the world of fly tying. Tell me about the introduction of colors to the Norvi system. When we obtained the company from Norm, he said to me just a very, very short statement. He said, you know, I always thought a colored Norvice would be a cool item. We brought out five colors, radical red, sunset orange, shamrock green, liberty blue, and royal purple. We have five colors along with the black that you're accustomed to seeing with Norvice, and we've been doing very well with those. To find more information in their online store, visit nor-vice.com. So you have 137 midge patterns in your book here, Colorado Guideflies. I mean, I went through page after page after page. 137, that's a lot of different midge patterns. Right. How do you decide when to put one midge on versus the other? You know, midges are they're so important, particularly in our tailwater fisheries, because they hatch 365 days a year. We typically see three to five broods in a calendar year. The first hatch of the morning, last hatch of the evening. So I always encourage anglers to familiarize themselves with the life cycle of a midge. So come to the river prepared to you know imitate the larva, the pupa, and the adult. And pupa, you know, once once we get to the hatch, you know, once we determine hatches in progress, that's when it gets difficult. You know, larvae, we dredge them along the bottom. The pupa requires a little bit more finesse and a little more skill because you're fishing with less weight and the adjustments with the indicator and the weight are critical for success. You're actually fishing a hatch, a midge hatch, right through all the different patterns like you would a caddis or a mayfly? Exactly. I mean, when I when I get to the river in the morning, there's typically, you know, there's not much activity. You know, you start out, you're just dredging those larvae as close to the substrate. And then as soon as you start to see a few, you know, 
adults buzzing around, then it's time to switch the pupa. And the biggest mistake that most anglers make when they're fishing midges during the height of the hatch is they use too much weight. And they're actually fishing below the fish instead of fishing mid-column. So that's why you want to, you know, make those adjustments. And I think, you know, as a general rule, most anglers get a little on the lazy side out there. They're not adjusting the indicator. They're not adjusting the weight. So I always try to encourage people to make those adjustments. Well, that leads me actually to my next question, Pat. How do you exactly fish a midge in a river? And the question comes from a lot of times we're hearing about like urinifying or just bouncing bottom with weight or, or putting split shot on. But when you're talking about a fly that's so light and so small, maybe people don't understand the setup of fishing a midge in a river. So what would be a, like a leader setup to fish a midge? As a general rule, I use a nine foot 5x liter and then I add a piece of 6x to it and most of the midge fishing I do is with 6x tippet and then I use a size 6 split shot about 12 inches above my lead fly and then I use a yarn indicator because most of the midge fishing is is pretty technical the strikes are very subtle so uh, with a yarn indicator I can determine you know even the subtlest of strikes and as I mentioned before then just you know adjusting your weight and adjusting your indicator that's where the finesse comes in and you just have to constantly you know mess around with those so many people would be familiar with this yarn indicator that they've been out there forever and people hear about it. But I understand you have your own version of a yarn indicator, the Pat Dorsey yarn indicator. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the name, and what's different about a traditional yarn indicator? Well, there's a lot of different options, you know, with regard to indicators, but yarn is, I think, the most sensitive. It hits the water the lightest. And back in the early 90s, a colleague of mine, Dan Wright and I, you know, we noticed that the guides down on the San Juan River were using yarn. So the front range, you know, here in Denver really hadn't been exposed to any type of yarn indicator so we kind of borrowed the concept and brought the yarn back to the front range and and people kind of laughed at us at first you know they're kidding around saying you're fishing with a glazed donut and all this stuff because it was just, you know back in the time we were all fishing with a little cork and a toothpick yep and, and at first we we started fiddling around with a lot of different colors and my friend dan wright you know he, he found this tan indicator yarn we started tying it in with a girth hitch and and then my buddy clay and selmo showed us how to adjust it with an orthodontic rubber band and then we came up with a fluffing tool and so a lot of times you'll hear it the Dorsey indicator but it's really it's a group effort okay that, that uh, a lot of people brought different things to the table and, and the end result is an indicator that that uh, we use all the time yeah I mean because obviously the one that maybe a lot of people are familiar with is like they call it the New Zealand yarn right, indicator right. how is this indicator the one that you're talking about different than that very similar. They use a, a little piece of, of tubing, and we use an orthodontic rubber band. A little different yarn. We use more of a polypropylene yarn, but very similar. Very similar. Rigging-wise? Yeah, very similar rigging-wise. Very similar with regard to reading the strike and so on. The yarn just, I think, just stacks the odds in your favor. Okay. So you said you're using about a 9-foot 5X, down right. to, and then you automatically attach a 6X right to that with like a triple surgeon's knot? Yeah, I, I, I usually use a blood knot. I just like a blood knot. They're real symmetrical, yeah. real clean. Two tag ends on either side, and then I can put my weight above that. Then I adjust my weight with a, a product called JP's Nymphing Mud. It's a tungsten putty. Okay. So I'm not a split shot guy, so I always tell people, if you got three split shots on and, and you're constantly snagging, and then you take one split shot off, you just made a 33% weight reduction. Right. The nice thing about about the putty alternatives like the JP's Nymphing Mud that's a tungsten putty is I can micromanage it. I can make 5% changes, 10% changes, and always be dialed in on, on my weight. I do. I add that little bit of tippet on the leader just to prolong the life of my leader. So I'm not cutting into my tapered leader, but I'm cutting right. into the tippet. And so your point fly or your first fly goes at the end of the 6X? Yep. I usually 
use some sort of an attractor, whatever that may be. If, if the water's really low and really clear, I, I try to stay away from bigger flies. I might use like a red larva or I'd use like a rainbow warrior, something with a dash of flash. Okay. Uh, a lot of my patterns have a little bit of flash. A lot of them use little beads. I'm a big fan of silver lined glass beads. We call it a mercury bead because it helps mimic that gas bubble during emergence yep. and helps separate your fly from the crowd. And then you're attaching a bit of 6X or 7X for a second fly? A uh, little 6X. I use 6X nylon. I use 5X, 4X, 3X, 2X fluorocarbon. I think in, in a little bit bigger sizes, it stacks the odds in your favor. But I use nylon tippet and 6X. Like, I go a mo- s- like a mono. Yep. And I go through spools of that. And you don't mind that it kind of raises up a little bit because that doesn't flo- uh, that one floats a little bit more. Yep. I'm a huge fan of the nylon tippet. And, you know, what I do is I, I come off the, the bend of the preceding hook and, and tie on two flies. In Colorado, we're able to fish a three-fly tandem rig, you know, and you, and you go to other places like Montana or, you know, New Mexico, you got to fish only two flies. So it's important that you check the local regulations on your tandem rigs. But I typically will use some sort of a tractor as my lead fly and then trail two smaller patterns, you know, maybe a tiny nymph and a, and a tiny emerger or pupa of some sort. You said you were talking about using that weighted mud there. Do you right. use that all summer? I do. It's, do you ever find it gets too hot and it gets sticky and it's not sticking right and it's not working right? No, I would say that putty alternatives are not all created equal. Okay. So um, the JP's nymphing mud is no doubt my favorite. It doesn't turn into a brick in the winter and it doesn't get too soft in the summer. So yeah. there's something about the composition of that particular product that I like. And then you just kind of make it like a little ball of it and put it on yep. there? Yep. I take my, I, I put his number six on there and then I take the putty and make it a bigger split shot is what oh, I do. Oh, so you do put a six on there to hold that? I do. Okay. That's so you're putting the, the mud around it. Ah, that's genius. And then it won't move. So I have the six so that I can, you know, fish mid column or fish right. shallow riffles or transitional zones. But as the need is required for more weight, then I add the putty on there. That's awesome. So you put the initial six on there to kind of be your core. Exactly. And then put the mud around that and you can adjust that. Exactly. That's very cool. About how far up past that first knot do you put that first splitty? I, usually a 12 to 14 inches. Above the knot? Oh, the split shot, the, excuse me, right the, on right, the knot. Right at the blood knot. Right at the knot. And okay. then so it can't slide down. Okay. And they put the putty on and, and, and it holds there. it's an anchor. Where do you come up with the ideas for your signature patterns? You're always trying to fill, you know, a void or a niche, you know, on something. If, you know, the Top Secret Midge was a pattern that I came up with just because it was my, my go-to small fly. So I tie that down to a 26. I tie it on a Timco 2488, which is a, a shorter shank but a wider gape. So the hookup to landing ratio is much better on that hook. When midges come off, they have a dark brown body and a very noticeable lighter segmentation. So that's why I incorporated two different colors of thread to imitate the top secret midge and then incorporated just a just a dash of flash in that pattern as well. And like all my patterns, they just, they're just a little particular dish they have, you know, and you're trying to solve a problem. You're solving a problem. You're absolutely. out there guiding. I mean, you're out there guiding. How many days a year do you guide still? I'm still about 175 days a year. So you're out there guiding. So you can recognize, you know, holes or challenges or problems that whether right. it be in the, the flies you're trying to use or the flies on the market or, or, or the fishing that people are doing from a day-to-day basis. Right, right. And, you know, a great example is my limeade. It's a, it's a big attractor dry fly. It uses, you know, chartreuse wings it's like a wolf but it's got chartreuse wings and i designed that fly 
because my father and I fished the Gunnison a lot in big freestone lined stream and, and in the evening in particular there's always a lot of glare and it'd be hard to find your fly out there and so this particular niche for this fly was I needed something that was more visible and thus that's how the the limeade and the cherry limeade surfaced. And people can find these at the different fly shops obviously at the Blue Quill? Yep you know Umqua sells to specialty fly shops all over the, the world and so you know that's the beautiful thing is you know Charlie Craven's patterns are available and all the signature tires at Umqua you know you're getting their patterns that have been recreated to their exact specifications and it's just such a phenomenal program. Is there some type of website or locator where you can actually find out which fly shops in the country or the world carry Umqua signature uh, patterns? You know I'm not sure if that if there is some sort of locator or not. Because a lot of times you see like I'll see Umqua and I'll see all their patterns on the wall and I'm like gosh where do I get that one? Should right, I call right. my local fly shop and see if they have it or? Yeah I think that's that's a good starting point and uh, you know we we carry dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of all the, of the patterns. Stuff, yeah. yeah, so um, I think, you know, people that buy from Umqua, they, they, they stock the whole lineup. Well, we know you've got four books out already, and you said you have another book that's coming out in the short time. What motivates you to keep writing books? Uh, maybe for a young author or just somebody who wanted to know, what is your motivation to keep writing books? It's It's fun. I enjoy writing, and I don't consider myself the best writer, but I'm, I'm a fishing guide, so I, I can get stuff down, you know, on paper. And people always tell me, you know, they read my books, it's, they say, it sounds like you're talking to me, you know? And so That's cool. I think it's kind of cool, but, you know, I always try to start by finding a project that uh, excites me. This one, uh, my new book is Favorite Flies for Colorado. And I got to work with all these really renowned tires. So I, I went to tires like Charlie Craven. I went to, you know, got a fly from Rim Chung and John Barr and Don Puderbaugh. And so I, I got their favorite fly, but we took it a step further. We talked about why they chose the materials to tie the fly and how they fish the fly. So there's going to be 50 patterns in this book and some beautiful photography. But And then there's about seven or 800 words of text on how the fly was designed and how they fish it and so on and so forth. Have you done any uh, magazine article writing outside of just your books? Have you written for magazines or any? I do. I'm, I'm the Southwest field editor for Fly Fisherman Magazine and uh, have a, an article right now on the South Platte in the, the current issue. So I, I typically write two articles a year for Fly Fisherman Magazine. Very cool. Well, speaking of the South Platte, You've guided, you guide there all up and down. It's an entire watershed. If somebody has never fished the South Platte and they want to come out and either fish with a guide or maybe try it on their own, because you do hear stories that it can be very technical, very difficult, but you, you also hear that everyone loves it and there's big fish there. So what would be some strategies if somebody wanted to try fishing the South Platte? You know, it, it is a difficult fishery, there's no doubt. But for me, I just grew up fishing that river and it was just, I had to learn how to catch those fish. So it's, it just comes back to blocking and tackling. There's, there's no secrets. It's just really boils down to attention to detail, fishing small flies. And like I said, you learn how to fool those fish. They are some of the toughest fish in the country to fool, but once you learn how to fool them, then it's pretty straightforward. You know, we're looking at this beautiful colored map here in your book, Fly Fishing Guide to the South Platte River, put out by Stackpole. Basically, we're talking about southwest of Denver. Yep. It's, uh, you know, an hour southwest of Denver is Cheeseman Canyon and Deckers. And two hours southwest, you know, you're getting more into the headwaters, you know, the dream stream. You got the Middle Fork and the South Fork, and then you've got... 
out in South Park. Then it, you get your first four-season fishery out there below Antero and then Spinney, which that's where, you know, it starts to get a national recognition is the dream stream below Spinney. And 11 Mile Canyon is real popular as well. And then Deckers and Cheeseman. So, uh, you know, I've been able to make my living at, in the Deckers and Cheeseman section for the last 30 years and uh, very, very blessed. So does it flow north or does it flow south? It, it is flowing north. That's what I, it looks like. The way you just explained that, it sounded like you were flowing north. Yeah, it, it, it comes off, you know, the mountains and it heads kind of it's more uh, east at that point and then it turns around and heads north and where it, it finally merges with the north plat okay yeah up almost in wyoming uh, at, the, at the nebraska state line oh nebraska okay yeah. talk a bit about uh, the cheeseman canyon like what's the scenery what's the type of fishery up there it's a classic boulder strewn canyon it's uh, three and a half miles long. I, I always say if I only had one day left to fish, it would be Cheeseman Canyon. Is that right? It's, uh, it's spectacular. You know, it's a wild fish, about you know, 4,700 fish per mile, self-sustaining population of wild browns and rainbows. It, it's an absolutely stunning geographic locale. It's it's amazing place. <laughs> and then how about the dreams? Yeah, that just I'm like excited to fish, and it's like the middle of February here, and all of a sudden I want to be out in the water. But I guess that doesn't matter here in Colorado. You guys fish 12 months a year. We do. We we're real blessed, you know, because it's a tailwater, so it's a four season fishery. And you know, as a Denver based fly fishing guide, I get to fish and guide all winter long. Mm-hmm. And you know, winter fishing is not easy. The beauty of it is, is if you can catch fish in the winter, then you're going to be a much better angler, you know, during the summer months. Well, we're about to talk. We aren't there yet, but we're about to talk about the five tips that Pat Dorsey has for fishing in the winter in Colorado or anywhere in the country or the world. So we're going to get there in a minute. But before we get there, we want to continue here on the South Platte because one thing that I want to know, it is a tailwater. Well, first of all, where is the dam making the South Platte be considered a tailwater? So you have uh, several of them, but... You have a Spinney Mountain Reservoir, and then you have the dam below that, so that creates the tailwater there. Then you have 11 Mile Reservoir, and the dam below that creates the tailwater. And then it goes down into Cheeseman, which was the first dam built in 1905. Then you have that tail race below Cheeseman Canyon, and then you have the Deckers. Then it goes down into Strontia, and you have Strontia Springs Dam, and you have the, the tailwater there just on the outskirts of the city of Denver. Then you have Chatfield Dam, and then that creates what they call the Denver South Platte. And so there's a tailwater there, and actually now... There are a few trout that live, you know, even down into the city of Denver, which is crazy. More warm water species, yep. but there are a few trout as well. What's the 11-mile area like? It's, uh, it's a little different from the standpoint it's a top-release tailwater. Okay, so, so it's coming over the dam. Yeah, it comes over the top, and, and they do supplement from water on the bottom sometimes. It's coming over the top, so usually the inflows coming into the reservoir is going to be the outflows in the tail race below. There's about eight and a half miles of fishable access there. Because it's a top release, there's only about a mile of fishable water during the dead of winter because of the colder water coming off the top of the spillway. Yeah. So you don't have, you know, most of the other sections, uh, well, Deckers, for instance, you've got, you know, six, eight, ten miles of fishable water during the winter. Uh, the Dream Stream, you know, it's a little shorter too. Sometimes you you get some ice and slush ice and such that can be a, a problem. It's just so cold, much colder out in South Park. So where would the Dream Stream be located? And everything we just talked about. So the Dream Stream would be above Eleven Mile Canyon. So it's and, above Eleven yeah, Mile. Yeah, Eleven Mile Canyon. There's about five and a half to six miles, depending upon who you talk to there. Of uh, you know, classic meandering meadow stream. They have done some stream restoration in that particular section, but it's a it's a lovely fishery. Upstream. Upstream, yes. So sir. it's above that dam that it's you were above, just talking yeah, about. It's above 11 Mile Reservoir. And then what's that section like? You know, it comes out of Spinney Dam, and then um, it, it's more of a meadow stream. You know, 
yeah. to about 8,600 feet. So it's kind of reminiscent of a Montana Spring Creek. Oh, cool. It's got, you know, riffle run pool tailouts, it's got undercut banks. But as I mentioned, they, they've done some stream restoration to improve yeah. the fishery and stabilize the banks and create habitat. And so finally here, the last section we want to kind of understand a bit more about is the Decker section. What's that like? That's my go-to winter fishery. Between November and March, that's where you'll find me guiding and teaching. And it's just easier access. And that's what my article is in the Fly Fisherman right now is on the Decker stretch and the winter fishing. So, it, you know, if it gets cold, you can hop in your truck and warm up. And it's really a great stretch of water for the winter months. Okay, so talking about tailwaters here, Pat, what would be some similarities to fishing a tailwater in different parts of the country? Well, I, I travel the country, and I always, I always talk about tailwater is a tailwater, and that's the beautiful thing. I mean, no doubt they all have some nuances, but, you know, some tailwaters, you know, they generate power. So you got the hydroelectric component. You know, here in the Colorado, it's more downstream demand. So the, the reservoir is capturing water to be used and sent down later in the year for, you know, irrigation, watering, golf courses and parks and lawns and so on and so forth, just day-to-day usage. So, you know, the challenge in, in the tailwater is sometimes dealing with the the flow fluctuations but the good news is is whether you're fishing the south platte here in colorado or you're fishing the bighorn in in montana or you're fishing the san juan in in new mexico or even the farmington out in connecticut or the south holston in tennessee they're all the same they're tailwaters and and they they fish very similar tactics and techniques are very similar so success on one tailwater usually equals success on another is there like a specific technique or things to think about when fishing a tailwater that would be similar across all the tailwaters you know uh, just fishing with a lot of little bugs you're, you're going to nymph fish the majority of the time but just bring in little bugs to the tables you know what where it really at is at and size 18 is kind of big you know 20 is more of the sweet spot 22s are better 22s 24s so we fish we fish a lot of little bugs yeah how do you see it? like tying you tie so many f- bugs on do you use a special glasses or you just got good eyes no i i have to use cheaters you know i used to be able to take a 7x and string up a 26 atoms it doesn't happen anymore so yeah i have to unfortunately i have to use my readers to tie that on oh so so. you just use like the readers from the cbs yep i just use cheap readers and that's what i use that's what i tie flies i mean i i I need the readers for for everything anymore so Mm -hmm. just a word from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show are you a guide a lodge a fly shop or a business in the fly fishing industry Give Art Hofford of Bissell Insurance Agency a call. Art has industry-specific insurance packages, and he has specific liability packages for fly fishing guides, outfitters, and businesses in the outdoor industry. Once again, call Art Hofford, and you can find his information at BissellInsuranceAgency.com. All right, well, finally, we've got to the heart of the podcast here. We're talking about five winter fly fishing tips for fishing in the winter. What would you say the top five? Let's just start with the first one, Pat, of fishing in the winter. You know, probably the the most important thing for success in the winter is going to be finding winter water. That sounds pretty silly. No, that doesn't make sense. Winter water is going to, you got to stay away from the fast currents. And you got to target the soft water margins. That's where the fish are going to overwinter. They're going to try to sit in areas where they can get the most amount of food with the least amount of energy. So, you know, you're going to be looking for those classic riffle run pool tailouts, but you're going to be fishing more of the slower tailouts. And that's that's where you're going to find the bulk of the fish during the winter months. 
So the winter water. So we'll just say find a good river that fishes well in the winter. Yeah, and that's, they're going to be tailwaters. Those are your, you know, four-season fisheries. But you're, you're going to concentrate your efforts in the slow water. All of rivers have, you know, nice riffles and nice runs, and, they, and a lot of them have nice pools. So during the winter, we have to just, we got to stay away from the fast stuff and target the slow-moving water. So kind of the bottom of the pool, the back of the ripple. Exactly, yep. The lake-like, the little, the, the glassy pools, um, you know, but that also comes with some challenges too because it's difficult to fool the fish in that slow-moving water. They get a really good look at your flies. Okay. Well, I love that as tip one. All right, so what would you say would be our next tip? You know, it's the time of day is important. So there's no reason to get to the river at 7 o'clock in the morning. You're just going to get cold. You know, you can show up around 9.30, 10 o'clock, and the hope would be that the water is going to warm up a few degrees. You're going to get a midge hatch, and you're going to start to get some activity, and the fish are going to begin to feed, and you'll be able to put a few fish in the net. And you have to really adjust your goals and your expectations because a good day in the winter is just a handful of fish. You're yeah. not going to catch a bunch of fish in the winter. You're going to you're going to get a few. It's just nice being out, and catching a few fish is a bonus. Phenomenal. All right, so we got winter water, the slower water. We have time of day, a little later in the day. Tip three. I think, you know, the things that I can control as a fisherman is I can fish smaller flies than the average person. And as odd as it might sound, you know, fishing a, a 24, a size 24 instead of a 22 can really stack the odds in your favor. So I always would say err on the small side and, you know, 6X tip it and a size 24 in the winter, you're going to catch a lot more fish than you would if you were fishing a size 20 or a 22. Is fishing a size 24 fly different than fishing a 16 or an 18? Not really. I mean, the, the greatest challenge with small flies, of course, is your hookup to landing ratio. You're going to lose a lot more fish with smaller flies, and, and that's just part of the game. So you have to, again, have, have those realistic expectations and understand that, gosh, if you can land one out of every two fish, you're, you're doing really good. Okay. So we go winter water, slower water, time of day, smaller flies. Tip four? Identifying feeding fish. You know, in the winter, for every dozen fish you stumble upon, only one or two is actually going to be eating. So you want to ignore the fish that appear to be nailed down to the bottom and the non-feeders. And you're, and you're looking for fish that are showing some signs of life that are suspended in the water column, potentially flashing, lifting, moving. Those are the fish that we potentially can catch. Uh, you know, catching a fish that's not eating is impossible, but a fish that's actively engaged in the feeding process, that really stacks the odds in our favor. So that's what I try to target. I love that. I love that. This is right off the top of your head. I didn't even give you any warning on this. And five, the final tip for winter fly fishing. Moving around. You know, okay. once, once, once we know the water type, which we talked about, is I think many anglers get trapped in a rut and they, and they sit in the same hole too long. And I've always found that, you know, your first few casts through any particular area is your greatest chance of catching fish. So I like to move around. I, I find the template, you know, that, that slow water or that soft water margin. And then I just move around a lot, look for those fish. And the more opportunities, the more moving I do, the better odds that I are we're, we'll catch more fish. So if I go to one particular hole, maybe I catch a fish out of that. Then I move to the next hole, catch a fish out of that. Move to the next hole, catch a fish out of that. Before you know it, you've had a great day. You know, that's what Howard Crossan was saying, even when he's doing his competition fishing is like kind of catching a fish here, fish there, but don't just get stuck there. Continue to move right. around. When you are moving around, in the, especially in the winter here, Pat, are we looking for specific water temperatures? Are they diff- the water temperatures that you're looking for different than they would be in the spring uh, or the fall? You know, this time of year, it really depends upon where you're at. Uh, and with a tailwater, you know, the, the beautiful thing is because the way a tailwater stratifies, the warmest water is going to come off the base of the dam 
and it cools down as it moves downstream. So the question is, and you get asked all the time, when is a tailwater quit becoming a tailwater? I always tell people about 10 miles or so. Okay. But if you, if you get to the river and you see a lot of ice and a lot of, you know, anchor ice, slush ice, it, just move closer to the source because okay. the closer you get to the dam, the warmer the water. And then in the summer, of course, the reservoir flips in the spring, restratifies, and then the coldest water comes off the base of the dam in the summer. But as it moves downstream, then it warms up. So it, it, Super it's, interesting. It's a paradox. And it's just, it's really interesting. But I guess, you know, the question is, is 40 degrees seems to be the, the magical, the pivotal spot. And when the, when wow, the, that's cold. When the water's below 40 degrees, it's hard to find feeding fish. Yeah. When it gets 41, 42, then the fish start to get pretty pretty active so that's why i always encourage people is you know take a take a thermometer with you keep an eye on it you know maybe you're out there and you're you're struggling to catch fish and you know gosh i can't i can't get anything going today and you take a water temperature and it's 37 degrees and you go oh my gosh no wonder you know i mean the water's too cold right fish aren't eating yeah well that's absolutely phenomenal the top five winter fly fishing tips from pat dorsey winter water slower water time of day smaller flies identifying feeding fish and moving around before i let you go pat when i asked you three questions one question with three different parts favorite dry favorite nymph favorite streamer favorite dry oh i i would say i'm, I'm a pretty traditional guy um i'm going to talk generically here that would please a parachute adams oh parachute adams I've, i love it if you carry a parachute adams in sizes 12 down to a 24 you can imitate every mayfly and every and, and even midges and i've fooled trout all over the world with a parachute atoms. i love the parachute atoms. it's just a fantastic fly and so. you know a good friend of mine tom balty ties the balty paranymph which is kind of like a parachute atoms but it has more of a dubbing body uh-huh. and it kind of sits just in that film a little lower and i've fooled quite a few fish with that paranymph but it's basically like a parachute yeah, atoms yeah favorite nymph you know that's such a tough question but again i would probably um and i'm going to stray a little bit here but i would say either like a pheasant tail or a hare's ear i love that and the reason is is the simplicity again of what we just discussed on the parachute atoms you know if you if you tie a hare's ear or a pheasant tail in a wide range of sizes once again you can imitate just about every mayfly nymph on the planet yeah so that that's a good one so uh, i i would say you know those are those are two you pick one, either or. Depending upon yeah, whatever. Those are great. Yeah, yeah. the pheasant tail. You, you can't find a guide who doesn't have a box full of pheasant tail nymphs in some form or fashion. Right. And then your favorite streamer. I think my favorite streamer right now is Matt Bennett's Lunch Money. Okay. I, I love that I don't know fly. that one. Tell us about it. It's uh, a good friend of mine down in Texas, Matt Bennett. He's got the Lunch Money, and, and it, it's just it's just effective on a wide range of game fish. Uh, you know, I mean, you can catch... Uh, everything on it what's you know, it look bass. like it's got dumbbell eyes it's just a real buggy streamer he ties them in black ties them in olive and, and you know like a brown trout rainbow trout okay sculpin i love so, sculpin yeah. yeah so he's got a, a bunch of different colorations the lunch money yep and i've caught i've caught trout all over the world with that fly too one of my go-to flies in argentina it's just great i'm gonna have to check that out maybe yeah. for some uh sea run brown trout in iceland it the, would work good. It's, it's a great pattern. Lunch money. Yeah, I think it has something to do with somebody stealing somebody's lunch money, maybe. I'll have to find be. out. <laughs> well, Pat, it's been an absolute blast to have you on the Fly Fishing Journey podcast. I appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it again. You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us.